Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi. I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Shawshank Redemption, written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on the Stephen King novella Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. No that, just Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. I must admit, I didn't think much of Michael the first time I laid eyes on him. It looked like a pat on the back would snap him in half. That was my first impression. But when a man greets you, you greet him back twice if you really feel sorry for him. Hello, hello. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Here we go. Nominated for an Oscar and Alex Cayotos. Hi. <laughs> Um, Okay, so we were talking about the Shawshank Redemption. So many things to talk about. This has been on our to-do list for many a year because our producer, Vince Major, this is his favorite movie. He's been begging us to do something about this for forever. Very sadly, he's not able to be here with this recording, which doesn't mean anything to you, listener. But he's usually here listening and like framing everything for us. And so he's not here. But that means it'll be a fun surprise for him when he listens to this episode. Happy birthday, Vince. Happy birthday, Vince. Mm -hmm. And if you are a patron and uh, one of the top tier patrons that has access to our monthly film club, we're going to be talking about the Shawshank Redemption in our next meeting, which we do usually the first Saturday of every month. And Vince will be there. Maybe he'll even reveal his face to the world. So you patrons (laughs) will get to interact with Vince and and hear all of his wonderful thoughts. It's time. It's time. (laughs) Also, what we're talking about, Patreon. Uh, if you support us on Patreon, you get us closer to our goal. Uh, where the next goal we pass, we're going to do a three-part series on the Bourne movies, and then an extra on Jason Bourne and the Bourne Legacy. Those other right. two. There's the, yeah, the other yeah. other Bourne so movies. So many <laughs> Uh, but the trilogy we're gonna do a three-part series on the original trilogy which i'm really excited about yes so that is very exciting and when you become a patron you get to vote on our monthly patron exclusive episodes this month it was the war of the war films (laughs) was the vote and saving private ryan won just by a little bit just by just a little bit of that and full metal jacket against full metal jacket yeah Yeah. good news to Trisha and Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Still hard to watch. Anyway, so patrons saving Private Ryan will be coming out before the end of this month. So look forward to that. And 
everyone. Our next episode will be on 28 Days Later as we're getting into the spooktober of it all. Uh, We're going to be talking about 28 Days Later, which I have not seen since high school, probably. Mm. Uh, So that'll be fun to talk about. That movie wasn't out in high school. It wasn't? (laughs) Not in Brian's high school. (laughs) Not in my universe. (laughs) Um, Okay. Shawshank Redemption is a good movie. And I, watching it this time, I realized I must have seen this like several times or parts of it several times because I remembered a lot of it once it started to get going. The initial time I watched it, I think it had kind of already been like spoiled for me, quote unquote, that like that he escapes and everyone is like, oh my God, the ending of Shawshank. So I feel like I knew kind of what to expect the first time uh, and like didn't fully appreciate it. But watching it this time, it's super good. The screenplay is great. The performances are great. The cinematography is great. The music is great. Everything is great. Very, very good movie. And yeah, just I really appreciated how smart and but like simple it just it does that movie thing where it's just well constructed. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It doesn't go too hard or too soft. It somehow walks this amazing balance of just being great constantly. The design of the characters and how they're rendered kind of with this, you know, uninterested in the morality of them and why they're in this prison. All this stuff is really just really, really well done. It, it's interesting to me, and I want to get into this, that this is like a, a big deal emotional movie for so many people. Like this is a like mm. I cry every time movie. And I don't think it's that for me, but I really want to uh, talk about why that might be if people have any insights into that, because I think that's what this movie is. One of the things it's very much known for. And I think diving into that would be interesting. Um yeah, so that's me and Shawshank. Brian and Alex, this was on your uh, top films of the 90s list, if I'm not mistaken. So, mm-hmm. Brian, why don't, why don't you start us off? Tell me about Shawshank. Sure. It's, it's funny. Randomly, my number one was seven and Shawshank was my number two on that list. And like I was thinking there's a similarity to those movies with Morgan Freeman as like the pessimist who just thinks like the best course of action is just to kind of give up. And he needs the protagonist to kind of like this sort of somewhat more hopeful protagonist to kind of convince him and change his mind by the end. You know, it's like for very different movies, obviously, they <laughs> kind of have a similar thematic thing there. Um, but yeah, this is just one of those movies that's always been with me you know i don't have no idea when the first time i saw it was because between probably the ages of 13 and 20 i watched it you know 50 times like sometimes on my own sometimes with friends sometimes with my mom loved this movie like it was just and and then you know it's just the movie that was on TBS every time you turned on the television and stuff. And the movie is so I think it's such a big emotional payoff when you sit down and watch the whole thing. But it's also a movie where you can just like you're flipping channels and you're like, oh, I just want it's like the, the rooftop, you know, sequence. I want to watch this and then I'll I'll leave or I'll go about my day or whatever. Um, so it just feels like a movie where not only have I loved watching it a lot? It was just one of the most ubiquitous movies of my, of like the nineties to me because my friends and I would quote it together. It was kind of always on. And I think that's a big thing for, for most people our age is just like, it's a movie that's just sort of has been there 
forever, you know, and it's just like it's just all was always there, was always on, uh, always sort of being quoted and talked about and everything. And the fact that it, I think, just still works and it doesn't feel like, yeah, that movie was great when I was 15 or whatever. Like, it's still just I feel like I can just watch it and feel like it has not aged a day. There's not diminishing returns, I guess, when, when you watch this movie. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, not for sure. Yeah, and it, that it's you know a period piece. I feel like that always helps, right? And so it doesn't mm-hmm. that aspect of it is never aging. Um, but also just as you said, the execution is still top notch, and it's hard to imagine this ever getting old. It has there's something right. about it that just has that the classic film thing. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know when the first time I saw this movie was exactly, but I it's lodged in my memory as kind of the revelation of this is what a good movie is it's at some point in my development this is kind of like when i think of like oscar movie or like movie that should win oscars like this is the like default template is this the experience of watching this movie i think something about watching this movie i i wasn't watching movies analytically yet and so i wasn't dissecting why it was making me feel the things it was making me feel, but the just the deep, like soul level satisfaction that I felt by the end of the film, where it had given me both kind of movie thrills of like twists and turns and reveals and like rewatchability and uh, just plot stuff that excited me in movies, but then had this third act and kind of like epilogue that felt like deeply like soul healing you know like like in a way that like only like a movie can do like that that kind of like i don't know just goodness reverberating off of the screen and so i think that those things combined was like that is like that is what a movie can be it can be both like really entertaining and engaging and never boring and then also like hit you on this like deep not mental level but like below that you know just like you know chicken soup for the soul kind of stuff and so yeah so that's why this movie like you know became what it was for me uh because it just was my first experience that i'm like aware of of a movie like achieving that um and being aware of it and being like wow like that is possible holy crap um and i think you know the music was a big deal too i've always been a big fan of film scores and film music and just in contrast to kind of like the John Williams approach to scoring. I think it was a really, I mean, that was like all the movie music I'd listened to up to that point was the more John Williams Spielberg school of music. And this approach to music was so much, it's, you know, it's present throughout the movie. It's not like it's hiding itself. It's very front and center, but it's also has this like elegance and subtlety and minimalism that isn't, it's not steering you moment to moment. It's just kind of, providing a bed for this, the sequences playing out and, and it's contrast or it's kind of enhancement of what's happening in the sequence sneaks up on you in a way that a more kind of like direct approach, like a John Williams. I mean, we're, we were watching uh, saving private Ryan this week and you know, there's, there's some early scenes in saving private Ryan before I, I get really sucked into the movie where I'm just, I 
I am resisting it because it's like John Williams is like giving me American <laughs> patriotism and honor like so hard and so directly and so literally that I'm like pushing back and Shawshank and like this kind of Thomas Newman score that's also in American Beauty and a lot of films from this era like doesn't attack me that way. It just kind of lulls me until I'm crying. Um, <laughs> and and so, yeah, just. All that to say, this movie was like the the archetypal example of just like the Oscar film for me growing up and continues to be because I watched it last night and I cried again. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Thomas Newman's score is just like cheating. Like there, no, this movie without that score, like right. I can't even imagine. I mean, it would still be a good movie, but like it's such a huge part of my experience of this film is that score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Trisha, what about you? Yeah, I had a similar experience to the two of you guys in that I don't remember when I first saw it uh, or like even when I first saw it in its entirety. And but I've always been like Shawshank, good movie. And just kind of like that's feels like a permanent state of existence <laughs> in my life and, and and in this movie. And I got curious about that. And I was like, how did that happen to everybody? Um, and the answer is, so I did some research. This movie was a box office flop in 1994. It mm-hmm. made almost nothing. Um, it like definitely lost money. It like barely scraped out 25 million, which was its budget. Um, but the, you know, with marketing on top of that and everything, like it definitely lost money at the box office, partially because it was up against Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump. Um, and those two movies were like instantly, you know, iconic, quotable, like huge, uh, cultural phenomena. It's fascinating that, even up until award season, it wasn't really in people's consciousness. And it was, keep in mind, Oscar campaigning as we know it now didn't exist back in 1994. Oscar campaigning was basically reinvented in the late 90s um, by Harvey Weinstein, which we don't need to get into. Um, (laughs) But what we think of as like, you know, making a push in award season wasn't really a thing back then. And so even the creators of this movie and the studio, Castle Rock, were a little surprised when it got seven nominations. And actually that in itself kind of gave the movie a lot more juice. Critics did like it, but audiences didn't go see it. And so they were like, you know, basically what in the hell is the Shawshank Redemption up until it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars? You know, it it didn't win any, Um, but it kind of put it back in the public consciousness. And then Ted Turner came along with TNT um, and it's like, you should read the story, but he basically sold the rights to show it on TV to himself because he bought all of Castle Rock. And then he was like, I'm going to show these movies. And possibly because of uh, the way that things were figured back then, it was like a bargain for him because it didn't make any money. It was kind of a bargain for him to show it over and over and over again. He didn't Mm -hmm. have to pay a lot to keep showing it, um, but he could still like charge ad rates through the roof kind of on it. And so they showed it and it, it opened up to really great numbers on TV And so they just kept showing it and they just kept showing it and they just kept showing it over and over and over again forever. And then it like, you know, VHS sales kind of helped rebound it and like put it back in consciousness and everything. But it really was just the fact that it was literally always on TNT. That is what we're dealing with here. This is the story of 
success over a long period of time, both in its plot and in its meta story. It's time and pressure. I said TBS. I said TBS because I forgot TNT was a thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But in in hearing that, I'm now almost certain that I watched it for the first time. Of course you did. Of course we all did. Like, I don't know anybody (laughs) who saw it in the movie theater. Nobody saw it in the movie theater. We saw it on TNT. Or if if we were lucky, you know, our dad had the VHS tape or something. Um, and, Mm. And so, like, it's just a fast fascinating example because it's also it was edited on tnt right there's like language a lot of language in this and some content stuff that's edited out of it and everything but it has that lasting power as you were saying alex that the emotional core of the movie is so strong and it's you know it's so literary there's so much talking in it morgan freeman talking straight at you um in his sort of you know uh drawl um, it's for sort of very dry way of speaking. And it's just great. Like the writing is just great. And the movie is just great. And so, uh, I think it was Steven Spielberg that says, this is like a chewing gum movie. It sticks to the bottom of your shoe and you can't get it off. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and I think that's phenomenal. I like what a beautiful tribute to the kind of story that it is thematically, um, that this is one of the most beloved movies of all time. Uh, partially because it was it was just a little movie. It wasn't that little, but it was a movie that had something that was resonant and just quietly said it over and over and over again until people listened. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah, and, and like you were saying earlier, Brian, this, this sort of episodic nature that it has, where it is these vignettes, mm-hmm. is feels perfectly suited for television like you were exactly. saying right. like between I commercial breaks <laughs> right yeah perfect yeah. places yeah. for commercial breaks but also that's what keeps the movie like moving there's like momentum there's always a mini plot that's happening that's part of a bigger thing and just all those bricks are laid just so to build this this great um I'm totally lost the brick metaphor, but build something really cool. Um, build a prison wall. <laughs> a prison wall. Yeah, there it is. Um, to keep in all your plot. <laughs> perfect metaphor. Yeah, perfect. I think I'd maybe forgotten that aspect of it. And so I was struck by it. And I feel like the other thing that it allows you to do are these vignettes that happen outside of the prison walls or our flashbacks or you know mm-hmm. we're gonna follow brooks and like the brooks mm-hmm. story and the midpoint like all that stuff um it doesn't feel out of place adds so much to the texture of the world and the themes and the character arcs and the stakes um megan chang uh, one of our patrons talked about yeah the brooks vignette basically and how uh it's an example of demonstrating like the worst case scenario for a character and how interesting it is that for these people that have been in this prison their whole lives the worst case scenario isn't getting out and being free it's getting out and then not like losing yourself and losing your identity not having a place and ending up taking your life because you feel so removed from like your home or what reality is to you, which are these, you know, the four walls of the prison. And so I think that's a really, really powerful observation. Obviously that Brooks as a, an example of like the worst case scenario is 
uh, cited very directly at the end of the film when Morgan Freeman is finally gets out of prison. You know, it's it's one to one almost in the way the shots are composed. Mm -hmm. And it's like setting it up. So it's very clear that he could be like Brooks, if not for this thing, if not for Andy Dufresne, etc. So. Yeah, so these vignettes do a lot of character work, but also keep the film moving. And uh, yeah, just really, really powerful, really cool. And Trisha, I'm curious because you read the novella. Is mm -hmm. is that uh, in that text at all? Oh, my gosh. So we got a couple questions about the novella from patrons. And I was just like, you know what? It's about time. So I sat down and I read it over the weekend. It's great. Like, I really enjoyed it. It was a page turner. Um, you know, Stephen King, uh, which I think you forgot to mention at the top, Michael, but uh, this is Stephen King. Um, and it's it's from the same collection of short stories that stand by me or the it's the novella is called The Body, but it, it was, you know, uh, Rob Reiner made it into stand by me. Um, it's from that collection of short stories. And. It's all narrated in Red's voice. So it's just like a first person. Red is telling the story of Andy Dufresne. But the novella is a sort of a mess. Like, you know, it's, it's the idea of it is that it's supposed to be really grounded. And so there's a POV thing where we're locked into like everything Red has to have seen directly or he has to explain how he knows it. And so there, the, the short story has to jump through a lot of hoops where Red is like, I heard this from this person who was like hiding mm. in the office that day, listening at the keyhole. And it's like, I don't know this for sure about Andy's escape, but I, what I would bet is probably this thing. And it, it just becomes really arduous. And also Red's timeline in the short story jumps all over the place. Like mm. the, a lot of the same vignettes, it is vignette-y. And a lot of the same episodes that are in the short story are also in the movie. In fact, I would say that every episode that's in the short story is in the movie. But the movie also added a few others, which I think is also really interesting. And I'll come back to it. Um, but the movie manages to straighten out the timeline. Um, you know, there are a couple of flashbacks, but we are always oriented in time in the movie, which... I did not feel that way when I was reading the novella. I was like, what the hell year is it read? Like, did this happen mm. before this other thing or this other thing? The novella is marked up in like different, the tenures of different um, wardens. There are like four different wardens across mm. the novella and the movie condenses them all into Warden Norton. It's super smart. Um, and there are other characters that are condensations as well of several different characters. And Brooks is one example to mm. great effect. Mm hmm. I can't believe what a triumph this adaptation is by Frank Darabont. The The novel is great, but it's not a movie. Um, and this script is such a movie. Um, it borrows everything that's good from the novel and just movifies the rest in the most streamlined way uh, and cinematic way possible. I can't like, I can't praise it enough. I just can't believe the choices that you think of as being like some of the stuff in here that's so iconic is just straight Frank Darabont taking the kernel of what's good about the Stephen King novella and making it the most cinematic thing possible. It's incredible. It's so, <laughs> it's such a good adaptation. And I, everyone who is interested in screenwriting absolutely must read the novella. I think for that reason and the screenplay, which I, I did sit down and also read this afternoon. It's just like a really great script based on like, a good book. Even Stephen King was like, 
this is definitely at least like top two or three adaptations of my work ever, if it's not the best one. High praise coming from Stephen <laughs> King. So take right. that for what you will. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. It, it is also, I, I had questions about how Red knew some of the things when watching the movie. So it is interesting that in the book, they address that. But you don't have them the first time around is the thing. It's sure. smart. Yeah, like when you're watching it for the 50th time, you're like, why in the world would Red know this? But the first time you watch it, you're just on the ride. Right. And I wouldn't want them to stop to explain it. Exactly. Regardless. Right. Right. Yeah. There's also a thing where it's like, if you just hear Morgan Freeman's voice narrating anything, like I just trust him. <laughs> and it's just sure. like, I'm not, I'm not going to question <laughs> that voice Fair. speaking this way to me about what happened. It's just, you know, it's the voice of God. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking like it's not the voice of God, uh, you know, obviously, literally uh, in this movie, but it is omniscient in the sense that, you know, there are movies where the voiceover, you know, I've talked a lot about how, like, what is the voiceover actually? What is it in the movie? Right. And sometimes it's someone writing in their diary. Sometimes it's writing a letter. Some, But some movies like this movie, it's just a character talking to you. Right. So if a character is just talking to you, then you don't need to know how they know something because they've, they're already breaking the fourth wall, right? So it's like they can know something that's happening on the other side of the world because they are this like middle thing between the movie and you, right? Um, as opposed to the, the example that I always give, which is Bilbo in The Hobbit, where the entire thing is set up as him telling the story you know, that uh, this thing that happened to him. And then he's like, meanwhile, over in Mordor, it's like, well, how do you know what this conversation these two guys were having? Because they had to shove those actors in there. So they set it up that way. Right. But when a movie is just saying, like, don't worry about it, like this character is just talking through the screen to you, then you're like, OK, you can know whatever, you know. Yeah. The lesson there is Morgan Freeman should have played Bilbo. That's what I took away from. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> not not Gandalf. <laughs> Today's episode on Shawshank Redemption is brought to you by Storyblocks. Storyblocks is a royalty-free stock library that makes it possible for creators to keep up with the growing demands for modern video content. So you can bring all your stories to life and stop sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Unlike traditional stock sites that limit content with a paperclip model, Storyblocks gives you unlimited downloads so you can create more. They have images and illustrations, audio and sound effects, and high-quality video and video templates. And Storyblocks has a selection of flexible subscriptions, so you can focus on creating instead of worrying about budget. Start bringing your vision to life by checking out Storyblocks and signing up for their unlimited all-access plan by heading to storyblocks.com slash beyond the screenplay. Once again, that's storyblocks.com slash beyond the screenplay for access to a huge library of images and illustrations, sound effects, video, everything you need to bring your vision to life. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. On the flip side of that, uh, I actually do also really appreciate that there is a a perspective narrating this movie that does not have perfect information that is outside of Mm -hmm. Andy's head because that helps the twist and the reveals pay off so well because, you know, you know, red is not aware of Andy's plans or what he's actually doing the whole movie. He's our, he's the one commenting on Andy trying to figure Andy out. Like who is this guy? What drives him? What, you know, what motivates him? 
why is he this way? We kind of hear Red's musings about him. And, and Andy, is, he kind of is mysterious. I, I think Tim Robbins does a really interesting performance here with this mm-hmm. guy who who is very kind of introverted in a lot of ways, who, you know, he, he has that line about how his wife always said he never expressed himself or, you know, showed how he actually felt. And so he's this enigma throughout the movie, almost like a he has, he's almost like a Jesus like figure in in the kind of good he does, but also always kind of keeps everything inside and you never quite are with him or understand what he's going to do next because he is that enigma. And it, and I think it, it's really nice to have red and to be with red on the whole journey. Otherwise it could be a bit of a kind of a distancing movie experience. If it was just focused on Tim Robbins performance without the red narrator kind of perspective on him, but because of their friendship, because of that, you know, we're, we're red's taking our hand and, and take us on this journey it, it really works. And then, yeah, when the twist comes and the payoff comes, it feels natural that we didn't know. It doesn't yeah. feel like the movie was like right. lying, to cheating, us. cheating us, lying, yeah. lying us. Cause we've, we haven't been with Andy's perspective. We've been with red's perspective. Yeah. So, so much to talk about with this movie. Um, yeah, with, with Tim Robbins in particular, I think, you know, he plays so perfectly cast as someone who can play like the innocent boy, but also the smug know-it-all, right? Mm. Who's just sitting there with that grin on his face. But then, as you said, Alex, then he's also sort of like, because he is a little enigmatic and almost off, you know, where it's like you buy that that when, you know, when it says like he asked for a length of rope and like, oh, he would never do that. And, and then Red, his best friend, is like, I don't know, you know, because like that that is his character. Um, and then uh, and, and then, yeah, back to back to Brooks. We kind of skipped over Brooks right. uh, a little bit. But um, James Whitmore as Brooks <laughs> is just like is any any, you know, older person who can just really play like into the sort of age of their character and not have to feel like they, oh, I've got to be tough or whatever, you know? Um, and, and he just does it beautifully. So such an empathetic, uh, you know, performance. Um, but then, but then going back to Brooks as a character, you know, it, it's, he is, we've talked about the, the clone character before, which is a character who sort of represents like a mirror, like this is what you could be to a, to a certain character. So, you know, Ray polishing her junk in uh, Force Awakens and looking <laughs> over and seeing the woman has been doing it for 60 years right or parasite you have these sort of like three couples kind of who are all mirroring each other um and uh, and yeah brooks is not only that for red but he's also that kind of for everybody like you know this movie is not about people who want to get out of jail this movie is about people resigned to a life in in prison right and and so it's like there isn't the person being man one of these days i'm going to get out of here and da 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 and like we're planning an escape it's just a bunch of people being like yep and then and then when one of them finally can go free then it's like he, he doesn't want to obviously and then that is sort of when the thematic conversation comes into the movie because then that's immediately followed by being institutionalized and then now we every time we're with red we're talking about this sort of like oh don't have hope it's not good to have hope and uh and, and you know that basically like <laughs> we should just stay put and live our life because otherwise we'll turn into brooks basically and it's just like it's a very, very pessimistic before, like such a such a sweet and beautiful ending that this movie has. But yeah, Brooks is just Brooks does so much work in this movie from both an emotional and a thematic standpoint. Yeah. To your point, Brian, I was thinking a lot this time around about the dramatic question 
Um, mm-hmm. We talk a lot about that. And, you know, that's basically like the thing that makes you want to watch the next scene um, is like, what's going to happen with X? And it's fascinating that the dramatic question of this movie is pretty obscure for most of it. Um, mm-hmm. Even though we think of it as a prison break movie now, it is in no way set up as a prison break movie. There are no other prison escape attempts. No one even says the word escape. Like it's yeah. not even thought about like escape is not an option for anybody. No one discusses it. No one even talks about like, Hey, remember when that one guy went over the wall and blah, blah, blah. Um, which there is some of that in, in the novella. And I'm glad that the movie is just like, nah, this isn't about escape. Uh, this is about what happens to you on the inside. Um, and so I think it's really smart to have that recurring scene. And we start off with it with red where he walks into the parole board and just the way it's shot too is so great with the bars and you walk in through the door um, and you see the seven, the five dudes sitting there um, behind their table and their faces are all obscured. The windows are behind them, right? They're all backlit. And then it's just like, you know, Red gives his speech in the first scene about how he's been rehabilitated. They stamp his form and we just move on. And Red walks out into the yard and it's uh, it's kind of a throwaway line, but, you know, they're like... How to go? And he's like, well, same day, you know, another day, another same thing. And somebody goes, oh, yeah, I'm up for rejection next month. And mm-hmm. it's just this is their life, right? The idea yeah. is like if you ever get out of here, it'll be because some random people randomly decide to let you out of here. It is not a question of escape. That's not the dramatic question. And so the fact that it ends up taking that dramatic turn, I think, is also what feels satisfying and surprising. We're not wondering if Andy is going to escape the first time we watch it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not a question that the movie raises for us. It very deliberately doesn't raise that question for us. What it raises is what happens to your spirit on the inside? What kind of a person do you become on the inside after a certain amount of time? And Brooks is the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... I think that that's just brilliant, this thematic question of the movie. And when a movie can do that, there's just this elegance to it where we're not wondering about the plot. The plot isn't what keeps us watching. We're wondering about what's happening inside of the characters like soul, which is beautiful and fascinating. Well, real quick, with the uh, Red's parole hearing, it's exactly what you talked about with Thelma and Louise of checking in with the characters three times and seeing where they are, you know. So then the second time we see his parole hearing right after the scene about having not having hope, he's on complete autopilot. He's like not even trying. Right. And then the third time he's actually honest and it feels like he, you know, he's not saying positive things, but he's just being honest. And then they're like, "Okay, we approve you now because we can like see that you're actually you've kind of made a change a little bit. To me, the dramatic question in some ways is, yeah, can Andy, yeah, keep his this spirit that he 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 brought with him into this prison where he he feels motivated to improve the conditions, to build a library, to to kind of tutor this kid. And then the you know the second half of act two is just like destroying all of that, you know, yeah. outright murdering the kid he was tutoring. He's now trapped in this money laundering scheme forever. Apparently he's being put in solitary confinement for months at a time. And it, the movie really pushes it all the way to the point where it does feel like, you know, the act two crisis is even this guy who, who was so resilient and, and had this, 
this kind of like unbreakable optimism, even he seems like he's now going to break. And that's where it goes all the way to the point of him, like holding that rope in his room. Uh, and yeah, and this is so satisfying. We, we get to go on that arc about the human spirit and then get this amazing twist and this like kind of rush of adrenaline as we realize this yeah. whole other subplot was happening. We didn't realize, but, but was there. And it's so it's one of those great movies where you can watch it so many times and see, oh, man, yeah, they're showing they're framing the poster up mm. in this shot, like really specifically. It's you know, we, we get the rock hammer and he, he the next day he's like asking for a poster uh, and it just it's all there. And it's just so satisfying that the movie both functions as like you were saying, Trisha, just like a kind of a plotless movie about the human spirit. But then on the second viewing, 100% the whole time, Andy is executing a, this elaborate like con, essentially. Um, and, and we get to see it play out in the end, and it goes beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like all of you guys just said like amazing things, like back to back to back. Uh, there's one I like. Go. <laughs> no. Respond. Yeah. <laughs> Summarize and highlight just the, the, the how how they all like plug in together, I think. So like you were saying, Brian, like Brooks kind of introduces theme. And then mm-hmm. as you're saying, Trisha, then they kind of sit and talk about theme. And the theme is the dramatic question, which is, yeah, such a great phrase and observation. Uh, and there's that elegance that's happening there. And. Uh, like you were saying, Alex, that like that we're being told the story through Red's perspective and he doesn't know the inside of Andy's mind. And he is this kind of enigmatic figure allows us to project onto him. And, mm-hmm. you know, Red wondering invites us to wonder and like think about. So it's just all these things that are putting us in just like exactly the right headspace to be focused on the thing that the movie is really about. And. Uh, you know, this is obviously, I guess, a flat arc structure, uh, sort of toward the end. I was thinking, mm-hmm. about, oh yeah, structure. This is totally a flat arc. This is Paddington too, basically where Paddington goes into jail <laughs> and then changes everything. Yeah. It's so powerful and that you, it doesn't announce itself as, as having any kind of like structure or character arc, like in a really overt way. But in these ways that, that you guys are pointing out, it kind of sneaks up on you that, this is about not losing hope and Andy's doing all these things as he's saying to like, remind us, uh, remind everyone what it's like to like, to be a human, basically like, don't give up your humanity. Remember what it, what it means to be alive, to hope. Uh, and you have red who is going on this journey of, um, change ultimately of like, you know, hope is dangerous. It'll get you killed. It'll make you go crazy. And we see why, someone would believe that and need to believe that in this place. And so it's just, it's so well crafted to have all these things there present, but not in your face, supporting whatever drama is happening in the moment and evolving organically until it has that amazing climax. It's just all these things working in concert at the same time, which is very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, the design, going back to what you were saying about Tim Robbins's performance, and just the design of Andy Dufresne as the the uh, he's not the protagonist; he's the main character. <laughs> Red is the mm. protagonist, um, but you know, going back to him, I think it's a really difficult character to to write because he's quiet, right? We know that like 
quiet characters have to make choices, but they make choices quietly. (laughs) And so it's (laughs) delicate work in the dialogue and in the writing to write a character that is quiet. And I was thinking this time about how it would be easy to dismiss hope in this story as being like naivety Mm -hmm. and, you know, a Paddington type of character who came in much more, much more um, cheerful and like hopeful <laughs> and bright yeah. and animated. Well, real quick, speaking of seven, that is the big difference is is that I think Mills in seven is a little bit more naive. He is. Mm. He just sort of whereas Andy doesn't feel Andy feels worldly. Yes. He's mm-hmm. just hopeful in his worldliness. Right. And it's such that's such an interesting uh, and very difficult thing to portray. Like. If you have to write a character that is hopeful but not naive, then Mm. what does it look like to write that character? And especially one that doesn't talk very much. And I was thinking about how much work, uh, for that reason, the voiceover is doing from Red. Because that scene where we see them in the yard, um, you know, Andy comes up the first scene and he asks him for a rock hammer. Um, They have a really great little bit of dialogue, a little bit of rapport there where he's like, uh, you know, if you wanted a toothbrush, I wouldn't ask, but a toothbrush is a non-lethal sort of object. And he's like, well, fair enough. I mean, you know, it's this in a rock and gem shop. What's your usual markup? It's very direct, but it seems like um, they have, you know, kind of an understanding in the way that no one is trying to power play or get the upper hand in that conversation. They're just being frank with each other um, in a way that's refreshing. But then you get that line of voiceover from Red. Yeah, I liked Andy immediately. <laughs> And it's like, oh, I guess we like Andy, too, because we like Red, yeah, like, so yeah, I like yeah. Andy. Um, right. The the voiceover is telling us what we're supposed to feel about everything um, in a very, like, I will say so much of Red's voiceover is verbatim out of the novella. Um, a mm. lot of that wonderful writing is Stephen King, but it's used by Frank Darabont to great effect with, like, picking the most sort of like the punchiest and most interesting lines in terms of like turn of phrase and voice and making sure we hear those and then inserting them in exactly the right moment where they kind of punctuate the rest of the dialogue to like clue us into what we are supposed to feel about the scene. And so because Andy says relatively little, um, especially in the first half of the movie, like it's so good that we have, Maybe too much, but a lot of voiceover to keep us like hooked into the character. Because otherwise, I feel like we wouldn't. He is a cold fish, right? I think somebody calls right. him that. Mm-hmm. He is a cold fish. Um, and it's important that we know how we're supposed to feel about somebody who otherwise would be a very tough person to know. Hello, listener. You can hear, or if you're watching on Spotify or YouTube, you can see that I am not recording in my home office. I am in Norway, Oslo, to be precise. That's the Oslo Opera House behind me here. Uh, I'm on vacation, and it is beautiful. And funny enough, as soon as I arrived, a young man ran up to me on the street because he recognized me and said he was a huge fan of the YouTube channel and loved the podcast. So shout out to Elias, our Norwegian fan. Uh, I didn't confirm this detail with him, but if he's a regular listener, it means that he is probably familiar with our sponsor, Mubi. Mubi is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from all around the globe. Right now, they have a special collection called The One and Only Tilda Swinton. 
I love Tilda Swinton, who doesn't, has movie rights. She's a chameleon who effaces the borders of gender and genre and embodies the infinite possibilities of cinema. This collection features a great selection of her films from throughout her career, including several from her very early days as an unknown in the 80s. And with the movie app, you can always download films to watch offline, perfect for long plane flights back from, say, Norway. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Beyond the Screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. And now, back to Norway. Yeah, and I also think, you know, we, um, we didn't really talk much about the opening, um, but I think that does a good job of yeah. setting Andy up, you know, the, the courtroom scene mm-hmm. where, you know, you have the, uh, well, you know, as I am innocent of this crime, I find it decidedly inconvenient, you know, <laughs> right. where it's like, oh, he's he's smart and he's kind of cool and we like him bucking authority and he's being he was cheated on. So we feel bad for him. But we don't know that he didn't do it. Like, we assume he probably didn't, or else the movie would have just shown us right off the bat, right? Um, but we don't know it for sure. So, again, it's the sort of enigma thing that you're talking about, Alex. Um, so I think the movie does a good job, you know, in the in the beginning of being like, this is someone you care about, and, and you're going to – he's going to kind of outsmart everyone, and it's going to be fun to watch. And, um, and then we get, uh, as you said, you know, the score and the narration and everything, which to your – statement earlier michael about what makes this movie just like perfect i think it's just like a top gun maverick or something it's like a movie where just it feels like everything is perfect like everything is at 10 out of 10 and i think it's just coming together where it's like yeah the story is great and the character is great but then you have this narration like the writing of the narration and the delivery of the of the voiceover and the score behind it you know so the rooftop sequence where he gets everyone the beers it's compelling and it's interesting and it's cool, but then it sort of periods with like Morgan Freeman, you know, and and that's how at ten o'clock in the morning we were, and then you you know Roger Deakins cinematography pulling out on <laughs> Tim Robbins' smirking face, and he doesn't even want a beer, and then Thomas Newman's score comes in, and it just feels like like everything by itself is excellent, but then everything is like perfectly working in concert together to make these, uh, these individual sequences. And of course the movie as a whole just feel like greater than the sum of its parts. I just want to say they had that line from Morgan Freeman already recorded and they timed the, the like move, the camera move to already go with the piece of it's, yeah, pretty good. Nice. But see, I think that's why this this was the like pinnacle of like Oscar movie. All these like because you can feel that you can yeah. feel like mm-hmm. somehow that line of voiceover and that music and that camera shot and the performance of the person in the camera shot is exactly what it should be to like make me feel exactly the right way. And a lot of movies aim to make you feel things or aim for an emotion. And this movie is just like, you're just hitting it every time. Like, how are you hitting it every time? Um, and yeah, just to call it Roger Deakins again, just this movie is so gorgeous. And it's just so when there's just quiet scenes happening, you know, with like Brooks amongst in his little library or with his little bird, it just everything's so beautifully, lovingly shot. It's just like a pleasure to be with these people, you know, it, it's a prison movie. You usually think of that being a grimy, dirty, horrible thing to look at, but the way he uses light, the way these characters are so like lovingly shot, it just feels there's a warmth in, in all of it, but it's, but it's, it's not like a gauzy, 
phony warmth. There's just kind of like a just a beauty to it all that is simple and quiet and Roger Deakins-y and just, yeah, love his cinematography. They also found the most gorgeous prison ever. In Manchester, sure. Ohio, yeah. <laughs> it is, it is yeah, overall exactly. a very pretty prison. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say really quick that this was Frank Darabont's, like, basically first movie. He had shot right. a TV movie before this and not really much else. Um, and then Rob Reiner offered him $3 million to let Rob Reiner direct it. And mm. he decided he wanted he like really stuck to his guns and decided he didn't want he wanted to direct it himself but it was tim robbins that was like well you should get roger deakins then <laughs> um because tim <laughs> robbins had just tim robbins had just shot the hudsucker proxy with mm-hmm. the coen brothers and roger right. deakins and he was like well maybe a really experienced cinematographer is who you need then if you're going to be kind of a green director on this movie which he was yeah well yeah and and yeah like you're saying alex i don't know that i would have known that this was a Roger Deakins movie, just watching the movie, I think I would have been like, wow, that cinematography is gorgeous. But I feel like the the quietness and the warmth that the movie has is also there in the cinematography. Like the cinematography doesn't feel like it's calling attention to itself. It feels like it's it's just supporting everything in the loveliest way possible. And even the way the camera moves and frames people, like you were saying, there is just something loving and generous and honest about all of it mm-hmm. and like finding the beauty in what is happening within this frame and within the people and how they populate it and move and interact like it's i feel like it's gorgeous in a not a blade runner way where you take right. a it's not showy. somewhere yeah. on blade runner and it's like oh my god it's so orange oscar uh this is like <laughs> so much like more like subtle but just as powerful and evocative in that kind of subconscious way. Well, we had a question from a patron or a comment from a patron, Afronaut or Afronaut. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this patron said, you know, this film is a rare and vivid example of soft power um, as a means of overcoming opposition and achieving one's goals. And then they clarified that soft power in this case, they mean like character, intellect, perseverance, fostering community and goodwill etc. Um, and I think it's, I think what you're talking about with the cinematography and what we're talking about with the performances, the quietness of Tim Robbins's character, the sort of like dry resignation of Morgan Freeman's voiceover. Um, and then also, yeah, the, the subtlety of the cinematography, the subtlety of the music, there is this soft power to all of it, right? Where we get a really stark contrast with the violence and the ways that other people in the movie are seeking power, right? We have those few horrible sequences um, with the predatory other inmates as they're attacking uh, Andy Dufresne. Um, And they're very difficult to watch. Um, And then you have also, obviously, Captain Hadley uh, just being like a psychopath um, in the way that he uh, treats people. And he kills that guy on the first day there. Um, which is also, that's not in the book, uh, but a really smart, strong example right out of the gate. This is the world that we're in now. Right. The you stakes cried are on, high. Yeah. You cried on your first night here and then you were you got killed um, by a guard who just didn't want to hear you crying, basically. Um, so again, super smart writing there. But there's there's a really strong contrast between people like Andy and other people in the prison, right? Um, not just in terms of like his education and book learning, um, but it's in the way that he 
I don't know, perceives his situation um, or holds his humanity. And I think that that's, would be my guess about why this movie has the lasting power that it does. There aren't a lot of examples of movies of this kind where like, you know, it's amazing that the ways that Andy manages to stick it to Warden Norton and to Captain Hadley are so satisfying, but they're not a confrontation. Mm-hmm, right? right. It's like, like music he, or beer. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not, um, I think somebody, I read an interview with, I think Morgan Freeman, uh, about this and he was like, yeah, it's a, it's a movie about, about a relationship between men that doesn't have any car chases or explosions in it. Um, mm. and I feel like we just don't have a lot of those and I don't know. It's just a reminder that we're hungry for these kinds of stories. Um, and it's just a beautiful, like, again, it's, it appeals to something in us that is maybe difficult to capture cinematically. Like this kind of power is hard to portray on screen um, because it is quiet. It is soft. It's about community. It's about friendship. It's about like, yeah, inner, the inner life of what it means to be like human and hope for things. And that's, doesn't it looks very intangible <laughs> it's hard to point a camera at that and really right. have it come across and that's the entire task of this movie i think that's why it does stick with people yeah well and you know this all these at the same time that all these these actions are coming out of andy and they're meaningful because they are different kinds of action and they're also doing the characterization that you were talking about earlier trisha of like how do we get to know andy if he doesn't talk much it's through his actions what are his actions yeah these are his actions this movie is just a collection of this man put in this situation did this with this context and it's it's also you know i think springs somewhat from the the context and the constraints of just what is in this person's power to do, right? He's in prison. He can't punch people without, you know, he can, but that's not going to achieve the goals that he's aiming for. And so I think it's, Mm. that's just another element that I think helps plug in of like this person's options are limited, but when you put the right person within this context where these options are the only thing available, it's what you get are these, um, yeah, rebellions against authority that are cathartic and that universally we like to see that are also expressing a unique character and getting at a really powerful human theme all at once. And just another way, just all of these elements are working in a concerted way to make something really special. I think the thing that you're, you're identifying Trisha that like we, it's hard to film. It's we, we, but we want it and it moves us in a deep way is that community thing where it's, you know, you don't get many movies where it's about like somebody decides to make a community better and then does it <laughs> over yeah. time. And, you know, and, and this movie is basically that. And it, it lovingly treats the members of this community who are normally like scorned by the director or the camera in a, in a prison movie. Like it's like, it's a dark, dangerous, bad place. And there are those characters. There are horrible, horrible people in this prison, uh, including the guards. But the the characters we know to come to know and love kind of red circle. You know, we, we never are made to think about like their crimes or judge them based off of their past actions. 
they're just kind of like they're just kind of blanks like they're all here for a reason they they none of them are asserting innocence the way andy is but it kind of doesn't matter because they're human and and we see joy and love and experiences like be brought out of them through andy's investment in the community and i think it's just yeah we just don't have many films that pull that off and i think you know it's a wonderful life is is a movie that i think resonates for this reason where it's you just see one person choose to invest in their community over time with a cathartic payoff of just seeing how it affects everybody else's lives around them also another movie that became popular because of tv that's exactly what i was about to say interesting Interesting. (laughs) not a classic yeah at first but was shown over and over and over again just wormed its way also made by someone named frank there you go (laughs) well Actually, Alex, I mean, one of the things that surprised me most about reading the novella was that none of those characters are in there. There's no Haywood, really? there's no anybody, there's <laughs> no there's no Brooks, really. There's a character named Brooks, and there's like a very brief episode about him, and it's nothing like this. He does end up not making it on the outside, but it's like they hear about it. It's just like he's a, this other inmate over there. He's not meaningful to them. It's just like, well, some guys can't hack it on the outside. Um, but they combined a bunch of these stories, and then also just, you know, Frank Darabont was saw, I think, really clearly – that this needed to be a movie about that, about exactly what you're saying. Andy investing in exact the community of that he happens to be in, just the people that are exactly around him, little by little over time. Um, and in like in the life of the guards too, right? We see that the guards right. like him and <laughs> the tax returns. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that that poor guard who gets locked in the bathroom when Andy's going to play the record and like he feels comfortable leaving him out there because he's like, well, just clean it up. And, you know, there's he actually stifles a laugh earlier at something Andy says, or, you know, I'm going to write two letters a week instead of one. And he's like, I think you will. Good for you, Andy. Um, he's I think it's so smart of Frank Darabont to make sure we have all these supporting characters to care about. Um and we really do like when Brooks, when we lose Brooks in the middle of the movie, it's absolutely devastating. And we've already talked about the other narrative things that that accomplishes, but it's because Brooks is so lovely too, right? We see him feeding the bird, Jake, that that incident of like an inmate feeding a bird is in the story, but it's not Brooks. Um, and giving that to Brooks and making sure that we understand this is a lovely person, um, or he's become a lovely person. We only know him in this context. And this is the only context that matters uh, at this point in the character's life. I will say, in the book, we do find out what Red is in for. Um, Red says in the movie that he's in for murder. The murder is described in the first couple pages of the book that Red is in for. And it's bad. Mm. It is very bad. Um, I mean, it's not like especially violent and it was just like a situation that uh, didn't go the way that Red had planned. But if it had been included in the movie, it would be hard to get past. Like, even though Red says he did a murder, we're kind of like, well, yeah, but it probably, you know, you know it it creates this <laughs> right. imagination. We We get to just imagine what we think it was and we just assume it's not that bad and we move on from it. And the fact that Red never tells us and the movie never tells us exactly what went down, I think mm. is important uh, just because this movie might be about 40 years worth of time or whatever, but we only watch it over a couple of hours. So we don't forget. 
um, in the way that the mm -hmm. characters, like characters can become different people over 40 years and we accept that. But if we had heard the story at the beginning, an hour ago, we wouldn't have gotten past it, I don't think, in time to like accept Red on his own terms. Yeah, he doesn't say it was like a horrible thing he did until his final uh, parole hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so I I, I want to get into lessons, but since since we're here at the end, I do feel like this is where for me, I think the cynicism overtakes the joy that people seem to extract from it because I find this movie largely depressing uh, of just about what it says about humanity and, you know, the social justice system and prison and that like, yeah, we can think of these humans as long as we don't know too much about what they did. But like, if we know too much about what they yeah. did, then like, never mind, they should be here and should be experiencing these things. And just the like the fragility of that, I feel like this movie brings that's what I see in this movie when when I watch it. And, you know, Andy escapes 20 years later, like, great, you've already said, like, I'm just so depressed about the state of reality at that point that it but I, but I feel like this movie, it's not less powerful for me because of that reason. I think it's just powerful in what it's saying in, in, in a different way for me. And so it's just interesting to hear um, the different emotional uh, states it can send people away in. It's interesting because like, yeah, I don't find this movie to be like joyful or not uh, sad. <laughs> uh, like, mm -hmm. I, I think maybe what what is so beautiful about it is like in the depths of like the worst kind of place a human can find themselves. There is so much humanity and and the characters are written and treated with such humanity. Like they get to be just people and not. Like, I'm the guy who stole the thing. I'm the guy who killed five people. I'm the guy who did this. Like, I think it is. Yeah, it's it's that kind of like a bittersweet thing where it's like both very dark and sad. But amidst all that darkness and sadness, we're treating all these humans like humans and letting them like have little lovely moments with each other in this horrible place. And that like that kind of juxtaposition and that like. You know, it's, it's like Children of Men. You know, I talked about integrity in relation to that in the recent podcast. Uh, my favorite movie is. Um, and that movie is extremely dark, extremely sad and depressing. But all of its characters are treated with like this kind of beauty and humanity. And that's where I get choked up. And when I get like blown away by a movie is like in those situations, the movie's not just like drowning me in bleakness it's letting humans be like a hundred percent human and they laugh and they joke and they have full lives in the bleakness of this place and it's the classic technique of you have a bunch of prisoners who did who knows what most of the time we don't know then we have warden norton and captain hadley <laughs> who are <laughs> bad like, it's like nazis mm -hmm. like just the worst people i mean truly yeah. like they <laughs> The movie, and again, that's mostly a construction for the movie. Good job, Frank Darabont. Um, but we see the corruption. We see the hypocrisy. We see the violence. Um, in, the, in the book, uh, Tommy Williams just gets transferred away. He, like, makes a deal with Warden Norton, and he gets transferred to a minimum security prison. That's the last we see of him. And in this, nope, he gets straight murdered. <laughs> like, yeah, literally and, murdered. 
Yeah. And I think we need that, right? Like it's just classic. And to your point, Michael, we shouldn't, we shouldn't need characters that are like a million times worse um, to find the sympathy and humanity for people who are incarcerated. That's another conversation. But like in, (laughs) you know, within the cinematic walls of this movie, I think having people who are on paper worse. We don't know what people like Haywood did. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't really know mm. what those guys did to get in here. Um, I'm sure it wasn't good, but the movie doesn't tell me. Meanwhile, I've got Warden Norton over here spouting Bible verses and having people murdered in the dead of night, all the while <laughs> getting rich off of basically slave labor. Like, right. I don't, I don't love hit. Like he's way worse <laughs> in my book, right. you know? <laughs> and so that's what makes it all the more satisfying when he and uh, and Hadley get their comeuppance because you have see someone who is a true sadist in Hadley who really truly just enjoys harming other people um and then you have Warden Norton who is corrupt to his core and those are people we can get behind uh in contra- like get behind hating in contrast to the prisoners who are normally set up to be you know some degree of bad whatever that means uh, in our society yeah yeah. Well, and yeah, it's to the movie's credit that it holds all of this and navigates it with such maturity and humanity, as we've said, and that it's it's good. It's good. Yeah. Happy happy birthday, Vince. Yeah. <laughs> you like a good movie. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from the Shawshank Redemption. Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. We, we touched on a lot of it um, with uh, the vignettes and the dramatic question. Um, but it's something I've noticed about weirdly a lot of my favorite movies, weirdly a lot of movies from the 90s, which is uh, Shawshank Redemption, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Big Lebowski, Fight Club, Train Spotting, where a lot of these movies, they don't really have a big hook. Like they don't have this, you know, inciting incident where you're like, oh, now we have to find out what's hap- what's going to happen now. And it's not to say they don't have sort of normal structure necessarily, but they don't have a big like, I'm really hoping that this character gets this thing or like th- this thing is going to happen in a week and they have to be ready for it or something. It's it's just sort of like you're watching people exist But then what they do have is these really compelling individual sequences. Um, And so it's exactly what we're talking about with these vignettes, right? Where you're just like, I I can't wait to watch the next scene. It doesn't have to necessarily be dramatically tied. And don't get me wrong. If I had to choose between a strong dramatic question and none, a hundred times out of 10 is math. (laughs) uh, I will choose. um, I I will choose a dramatic question. But it is interesting to study movies that don't have a strong dramatic question and see why they still work. You know, 
Lady Bird's another one we just talked about where it's like you're watching a bunch of vignettes. And I think Lady Bird and Shawshank are similar where there is sort of a soft, like intangible dramatic question of like, is this person going to be okay? Mm -hmm. Right? Like this person seems not okay. Are they going to be okay? So we are, we are watching their emotional journey. It's not just, we're watching a bunch of scenes that have nothing to do with each other. Um, but then the individual sequences we're watching are hopefully in some way thematically tied, hopefully in some way are leading into each other. And, and, you know, there's connective tissue there. But ultimately, we are watching just really satisfying individual sequences um, that, that just make us go. That was really fun. That was like a really fun five minute short film we watched. Now I can't wait to watch the, the next one. Um, but, yeah, you know, as we talked about with Shawshank, like Tommy's reveal of, you know, I heard this guy say he did this thing 90 minutes into the movie uh, in into a you know two hour and 20 minute movie. Like that's the first time there's any chance of like, oh, maybe first of all, Andy didn't do it right. Like we still don't really have confirmation of that until that point. Um, second of all, maybe he can get out. Now we have a hook. Now we have something to, to, to latch on to. 10 minutes later by Tommy, you know, and then that's gone. Right. And then of course the dramatic question becomes like, Oh, now I really is I'm worried. Is this guy? Okay. Right. And we don't know that there's this prison break happening in the background. So many setups and payoffs. You mentioned it, Alex, but like every, every moment in this movie is a setup. Um, but we are like worried for Andy's soul at this point. Right. Like has, has, you know, pessimism won. Um, but again, that's a very soft, uh, uh dramatic question question but we're just so invested in in the scenes and the characters and everything so I, I think that um bottom line is just if you are writing something hopefully you have a big like a good dramatic question but also just look at your individual scenes and say is this scene as compelling as it could can be and as entertaining as it can be just by itself and are they you know are they at least being tied together by some sort of thematic way? Is there a flow there where even if you are like we talked about with Ladybird, if you are for 20 minutes going, I'm not really remembering what the big dramatic question is. You're still just like, but I'm with you. Like I'm with these characters and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in, in the story that's happening. And eventually I'll be more interested in the, the bird's eye view of the whole story as a, as a, as a whole. Yeah. You, you kind of like, said it briefly but there is like this kind of implicit quiet dramatic question in both of these examples as you were saying like is this character going to be okay like what's going to happen to this character are they going to be okay and i think as you're pointing out like if if tied to a clear theme such that we know what it right. means that they are okay or not okay that is extremely compelling and i think it is going along the lines of what we were just talking about of things that are hard to shoot or hard to like point at like mm -hmm. that's this is a a kind of story and emotional journey that requires context and care to execute but it's clearly really powerful if you can assign meaning to is this character going to be okay if they are it means something amazing about humanity if they aren't it means something else that is extremely compelling it just takes maybe some extra work to get there but when you get it it's really special trisha what's your lesson yeah i want to talk about the escape itself and the bait and switch of how it goes down because it's so brilliant and it's like so much of it is not in the novella which means so much of it is just straight frank darabont and it's awesome um 
We mentioned the setups and payoffs earlier, and I want to come back to those because I think they're really fascinating and really well done. But it's genius to align like Andy's dark night of the soul crisis with this, like it creates a, a true bait and switch where we're being given pieces of a puzzle and they add up to something that it turns out not to be what we think it is. And then what it turns out to be is so much better than we thought it was. So like, we know that Andy is depressed. Red really wonders if he's going to be okay. We're given all these details of the night of the escape where he's like working in Warden Norton's office. He seems kind of depressed and sad. Warden Norton's like, take my laundry down, polish my shoes. We see Andy take the shoes out of the box. He's polishing the shoes. It's demeaning. Andy seems very low. He seems off. He seems weird. Um, That feels like a puzzle piece. Uh, We get to hear Haywood talking about the piece of rope. It's like, we already know there's a piece of rope involved. That's a puzzle piece. Uh, We know what happened to Brooks. That's actually a puzzle piece. All of this like adds up to what feels like, I know how this night is going to end, right? It's, It's doing a two plus two. The picture it paints in our heads is he's gonna take his own life and we're really worried about it. At the same time, we don't quite believe that that's going to happen, but it's like, it's a true bait and switch because all of that stuff was important. They weren't showing it to us as a lie. They were showing it to us because it does become important, but then it's paid off in an unexpected way. It really is like a heist movie as that as it plays out how the escape actually happens. Mm-hmm. And it goes all the way back, right? It goes all the way, all the way back to before the poster. And then it goes to the poster. It goes all the way through the, we see actually how the like escape went down, where he crawls out. But then we still don't even find about like, where was he keeping the rock hammer during when they were tossing the cells? <laughs> like, we, like we don't get to find out about that until Warden Norton does. And where, how did he get the money out? And like all this stuff. The setup with Randall Stevens, this ghost of a person, again, that's a setup. We don't realize it. So some of the setups, we don't realize our setups. Other setups, we the movie is hanging a lantern on them. We don't know what they mean, but we think it means one thing. And then it turns mm-hmm. out to mean something else. It's just really smart. It's like all the details are being shown to us in detail. And there's an explanation that isn't the one that turns out to be important, but it's one that we can understand in the moment when we're being shown to it. And that's like heist writing at its absolute finest. I, And again, so much of it is not in the books. So much of it is just Frank Darabont and the way the reveals tumble out are masterful. And I think that's just why like, um, it's hard to do a switch like this. It's so hard to do. Yeah. It's so hard to do yeah. a twist like this and a switch like this where everything pays off and none of it feels like cheating. Oh, it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, I 100% agree. Like I was watching for that stuff. Like how is the, I don't know if exposition, I guess the setups, how are they delivered yeah. in, in an effortless way? You know, and a lot of it's just like, I want to make 
chess pieces. Like, great. You know, like that's why I need a rock hammer. But then I think it was, it was Thelma and Louise where we talked about rarely does a movie actually have a character say the thing that is going to happen because usually a movie wants to hold that back. They have a whole conversation about you couldn't dig your way out. With her. What are you going to dig your way out? Nah, you can't dig your way out. Like, so it's like they put that in your head as like, well, they've had a conversation about it. So he must that must not be what he's doing or else they wouldn't have said that. Right. And then the only one that like kind of I bumped on a little bit this time around is the Randall Stevens conversation um, because that does feel like we need to give the audience a lot of information right now of like, no, he's a, he's a phantom. Like no one could ever find him. They're like, trust me. But it is uh, a, a scene with conflict, right? It is, um, you know, red trying to say like, Andy, watch out. Like you might be in trouble if this thing happens. Andy's like, no, no, no. You don't understand how good I am at this. There is no issue. So there is that nice, like they both have an objective for sort of giving the audience this exposition. But I think it was the only time where I kind of went like, oh, this is a little bit like we need to kind of explain some things now so it makes sense later. Well, and it's way worse in the book. I mean, in the book, Mm. it's like Andy is specifically talking. In the book, Andy has created this phantom specifically so he could like make money and escape later maybe. Or, like, get it when he gets out, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. But having this person be, like, a surrogate for Warden Norton's, like, shady dealings and everything makes it feel more organic. Like, I don't know if that's going to pay off with Andy, but maybe it'll pay off with Warden Norton, where Warden Norton will get in trouble for it or something like that. Again, there's more of a reasonable explanation where in the book it just feels like, well, yeah, Andy set this thing up so he can get it later, so he's probably going to go get it later. <laughs> and I think the other point that you had brought up, I think, Alex, earlier on that that helps sell this uh, bait and switch and make it not feel like the movie is like cheating or something is because we are seeing it all through Red's perspective. And so it makes sense that Red wouldn't have all those details. And so it's almost like, well, of course, the movie didn't show us everything because like Red didn't know everything. I feel like that kind of has that meta effect of softening um, the like, you lied to me movie. Right. whatever feeling that could have been there. But for all yeah. the reasons you're pointing out, Trisha, I don't feel that even like the need for that because it's all done in such a smart, effortless, um, earnest way. Alex, it's your lesson. Yeah, I was thinking about, because yeah, there were some questions of like, yeah, why is this movie the best movie ever? Why is it so powerful? <laughs> Michael, you were asking that question. And I think, you know, I, I was trying to think of like, why do I guarantee like guaranteed like sob at the end of this movie. And I think what's happening in the finale of this movie is just some, it's just this really simple, beautiful, like act of love between two friends where Andy has orchestrated a situation in which red has a reason to live and, and has this friendship. that's a reason to live. And like, the way that it all plays out so beautifully with the tree and, you know, going, going on this adventure to Mexico to find Andy. It's, I think there's just something about like deep, genuine friendship over like many decades. That is something we also don't see very often in film. And it's not a friendship forged because we got to do something, you know, it's not a friendship that is forged because we're going to go into battle together or because we're going to do a heist together or this mission together. It's just, we just live in this place together for a long time and just form this deep, genuine connection and really care about each other. And the, like the ultimate gift is given 
between those friends by the end of the movie. And like, that is like, I don't know, just like, there's not many movies that like that take you on that journey and like pay it off in such a beautiful way. And like the last shot is just like them hugging on a beach. And mm. I think that's just like, that gets me. And I think it gets a lot of people in a way that like kind of the more conventional movie relationships, movie emotions, movie romances are just kind of like, we're just so, I don't know, used to them and we kind of like aren't moved by them anymore. I think it's still rare and powerful to, to feel this kind of love between just like platonic friends expressed right. so powerfully. We also don't get that like last line that movies would have, you know, like, I didn't know if you're going to come, but I had hope. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like that Screw kind of that. thing. Right? Yeah, none like, of that. Uh, yeah. No, we don't need yeah. it. They're hugging on the beach. They're done. They yeah. did write those lines and the actors did say them and they cut them out. I mean, it wasn't Good exactly that, choice. but it was like, right. yeah. it was like the sort of a repeat of their first conversation from the yard. Like, oh, I'm a man mm-hmm. who knows how to get things. They cut it, cut it. So smart. Good job. Perfect. Cut it out, yeah. everybody. Well, and there's, Morgan Freeman does have like voiceover, right? That's playing over yeah. that. That's kind of summing up getting right. at the, you know, I hope thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's not, but it's not phrased in like a, yeah, you don't, you don't get like a, a callback line of like, Right. Yeah, like what you said, Trisha, like I would hate that if if Andy jumps off that boat and says some kind of reference to earlier and they hug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting. Like the, the comparisons to Lady Bird keep coming. Um, mm. But like when I watched that, my partner was like, like, are there movies like this about like men that's just like about like normal mm. male like people like struggling with normal things that aren't. Yeah. <laughs> war or what like all these things that are yeah. these sort of you know the only places where like masculine relationships uh can happen and this is you know as we put it this is prison so it's still like right. within that but it, it does feel like there is a a sensitivity and an earnest like love between these people and that there is this community that i think is just also not seen a lot in um you know, male relationships aren't often portrayed with yeah. such like love and care and that like that the as you're saying that the finale of the movie can be like friendship and like hugging earnestly mm-hmm. on a beach where they're yeah. gonna live happily ever after together as friends. Like that's Yeah, and it doesn't rare. feel cheap at all. Like it feels right. so earned. And and I think right. part of it too is just yeah, the deep vulnerability of Morgan Freeman's performance. You know, we've seen the same kind of vulnerability from Brooks in that, you know, that mirror scene earlier. And I think it's just, you know, it's just such a testament to the performance of Morgan Freeman where you see in his eyes when he's like sitting alone in that apartment and kind of contemplating his life now, how fragile he is. And then you see the same kind of vulnerability in another way of just like the childlike excitement he has of going on this adventure to Mexico at the end. And it's just, it, there's no, yeah, there's no cynicism there. There's no kind of playing it cool. It's just this almost like childlike transparency in the performance, yeah. which, which I think helps once again with like, none of this feels like movie, a movie thing where I can put up barriers. It's like, it, I can't do it because it's just too real and too vulnerable and too earnest in a, in a, in a way that it, the performances earn. Yeah. I also love that that last action is like breaking the law again also, right? Like violating his parole, but like yes. for a thing that like we're excited about. And like, I feel like yeah. just, it's an interesting little sprinkle there. Yeah. So then I feel like 
we've already talked about this a ton, but watching it this time, the Brooks vignette storyline just like hit me like a bag of bricks. That was the time in the movie that I was like getting really emotional. It's just purely tragic. It's super real. And as we've detailed endlessly at this point, it brings so much to the movie. Like in some ways, this movie doesn't work without this sequence on a thematic like meaning level yeah and so just the kind of the the thought that it made me go away with was like you know detours if they are for thematic purposes are maybe worth considering like maybe Mm -hmm. it's okay to in this movie is set up such to allow for these vignettes and detours in a way that not all movies are but it made me want to be more open to the like but maybe more movies should do that. Like maybe it is fine to interrupt whatever your like main plot is. If what you're going to interrupt it for is for a sequence that will be moving and add meaning to the experience that will then carry over and be expressed for the rest of the thing. Like that's a sacrifice worth making, I think. And the one detour that we haven't talked about yet is the one with the Italian opera record. And it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It has kind of nothing to do with the plot, right? Andy gets a box of records along with a bunch of books for his library, but it has a huge impact on the way that we read the theme, right? It has, Mm -hmm. it's the first time hope is sort of brought front and center in the text of like, we can see how, something beautiful beyond the lives of these men moves them. Um, And it's also doing important foreshadowing work about Andy is willing to stand up. Like he is willing to rebel. He is willing to take extreme actions, lock a guard in the closet, lock the door of the office. And then when Warden Norton is standing there going like, turn that off, he just turns it up. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's that foreshadows his escape. So the detour of that, which, you know, in terms of plot, doesn't really do much. He gets a week in the hole and then we move on and hear more about the library is doing so much character and so much thematic work. And it's like, you know, one of the most now iconic scenes in it. We have the, the prisoners rising up in the infirmary and going to their windows to like hear the music. It's beautiful. Also, not in Stephen King's novella. <laughs> Frank Darabont. Amazing. That um, is amazing. But yeah, the detours yeah. here are super worth it because they're not disconnected. They're intimately connected to the way that we um, perceive the film. One, you guys say detour with a lot of syllables. Um, two, it's the same thing we talked about with um, uh, with Nope, with the Gordy, uh, you know, the Gordy's home flashback, right? Where it's like, regardless of what you think of that movie, every thematic conversation in that movie right. has to include that detour, right? It has to say like, well, what what is that? flashback saying about the theme of this movie um and uh, and and it's yeah it's cool it's cool to have some little extra thing in your movie that makes people go well what was that there for and then that sparks conversation i don't think you say detour with enough syllables it's yeah i get it done i'm just over with are we even saying it differently i don't know what you're talking about everyone knows detour it has five syllables i don't know why there's any kind of uh, all right, well, we'll go around and say what we've been watching recently before we do a reminder to everyone that our next episode will be on 28 Days Later and patrons, our Saving Private Ryan episode. will If it's not out already, it will be out very shortly. 
I look forward to that conversation. I think it's going to be intense. And then we need to watch some happy movies, but we're not. We're going to watch 28 Days Later. But eventually, <laughs> we'll get to some happy movies. Um, but in the meantime, what have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? I checked out Gaslit, uh, which is a limited mm. series on, I guess, stars, but stars via Hulu for me. Um, it's really great. It's um, it, it, nobody's talking about it. It kind of went under the radar, but it stars Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. And it's about Watergate, basically. But from you're kind of seeing the perspective of a bunch of players involved in the whole Watergate conspiracy and scandal. Julia Roberts plays the wife of Nixon's attorney general, who was kind of kind of going uh, rogue during that time and speaking out against the war and was basically just like this kind of this thing they couldn't control during the scandal. Um, I'm only a couple episodes in, but so far it's just been really nice to see just like this great, like political thriller, almost Coen brothers satire at times, uh, well shot, well acted, really fun thing that I just, I, we don't get many movies like this. And so limited series are the place I think actors like Julie Roberts and Sean Penn will go to just make the kind of political thriller movie that we were not getting. And so if you have access to stars or Hulu or however you get it, uh, gaslit is really <laughs> enjoyable. And if you liked, you know, um, homecoming on Amazon or Mr. Robot, there's a Sam Esmail is a executive producer on the show and you can feel some of that aesthetic and kind of sensibility in the show as well. Um, but yeah, gaslit is really fun. I recommend it. Nice. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching? Yeah, I am watching, as I'm sure many of you are, uh, the Lord of the Rings show, The Rings of Power. <laughs> I was invited by a lovely YouTube channel called Fellowship of Fans uh, to be a part of a panel discussion every week on The Rings of Power. So uh, I've done one week of that. I started last week. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a few more out by the time uh, this episode drops. Um, but basically, I'm part of this book spoiler free. So we're talking about the show, but we don't with uh, I'm on a panel with a few other guests who know nothing about Tolkien lore. So we're just watching the show as a show <laughs> and kind of talking about it on its own merits uh, because some people are doing that. I'm sure also there are massive Tolkien fans out there that are watching it with a lot of knowledge about like, oh, there's this person and that person. There's I am not. Yeah, exactly. There's Numenor. Numenor is amazing, uh, by the way, in the show. It looks incredible. <laughs> super pretty. Oh, wow. This show is so expensive and very gorgeous. Um <laughs> But anyway, uh, so I'm watching that. I'm very happy to be get to chat about it every week. Um, on Sundays is the live stream. It's also a live show. So if you want to drop in and ask questions to us live, you can do that. Um, it's on Sundays and it's on the, the YouTube channel Fellowship of Fans. But yeah, I've been really enjoying getting to uh, dive into the Lord of the Rings show. There's lots to talk about. Uh, lots of meta stuff about like modern TV and also like, you know, legacy kind of uh, properties like Lord of the Rings and how do you do this and what they're doing really well and um, like what is way more difficult to do than you might ever imagine. Um, it's very interesting. So, uh, yeah, 
Rings of Power. <laughs> I'm sure lots of you guys are also watching it. Uh, so join me over there on Fellowship of Fans. It is uh, quite a ride. People awesome. have opinions. Oh, they really do. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Very surprising. <laughs> Internet never has opinions <laughs> on things like this. Yeah. Awesome. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, I went to a screening of the film Short Bus from uh, 2006. I remember I Short think. Bus. Yeah, um, which was uh, John Cameron Mitchell's uh, movie that he made after Hedwig. Um, and he was there for a Q&A. And uh, it was it was a really kind of like intimate experience, which was great. Um, and yeah, the movie, if you don't know, it's it's kind of a New York relationship drama comedy kind of could be like an Annie Hall or when Harry met Sally or more like recently, like Alina Dunham kind of thing. But with the extra bonus of the there being lots and lots of non-simulated sex in the movie completely shown and there for for all to see um so uh but it's it's really interesting and he talked about how he just wanted it to be part of the story and and part of the the world of the movie and not be there to be taboo or to arouse anybody it's just it's sort of matter of fact the way that it's handled um and uh, so, you know, fair warning, if you watch it, that's what this movie is. Um, but uh, but I, li I liked it a lot. I, I really like him as a filmmaker. And it was cool to see it for the first time in a theater full of like some fans who had seen it lots and other people who had never seen it. And uh, and, and everybody was sort of on the same page of like we are. We're, we're just watching this movie as a movie and like, that's okay. Right. And I think that Mitchell had kind of hoped that like more movies would try to do that afterwards, but that it didn't really happen or at least it didn't happen to, with any success. So it's sort of this interesting, um, the, 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 the panel of movies was called like a shock and awe, the W years, uh, which was like <laughs> movies that were like made in response to, to George years. W. Bush's yeah. Yeah, administration. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a quirky, weird, little movie and and if you are open to uh what it is um i think it's really worth watching and i had a really great time with it nice i think we had to watch that in film class in santa I, cruz actually, I think, no i no michael i'm pretty no. sure i surprised sprung it on you um, really, i think we were i think I there was think like you can show that in no, i think class. alex made you watch I, it i think there were like i think there were like a few, film class. a few of us were hanging out yeah. at like our at like our apartment in college and mm. i think i was like you guys have heard of this movie short bus like i think i'd rented it you know uh, at the time because there was a video right. rental shop near our college and i think i just like i was like i'm gonna put on this movie and like see what you guys think and i was yeah and we watched yeah, it it's today. actually <laughs> illegal to show certain things in certain environments i'm sure yeah, right. <laughs> right. i don't know if you know about that we watched some pretty weird experimental we stuff in film school Santa Cruz, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah California. Like a lot of the theaters were like it was like illegal yeah. for them to actually show that movie. Yeah. yeah. Right. Anyway, I showed it to you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> I remember almost nothing, um, but I love the summary <laughs> of it. I'm happy that you had that <laughs> experience, Brad. Michael, what are you watching? Uh, so I recently watched Tokyo Vice on HBO, and it's really good. Uh, so it's like about this. Uh, it's, so it's based on a memoir of this reporter named Jake Edelstein who moved to Tokyo and spent 12 years there as a reporter uh, dealing with all the cultural differences 
and like journalism and just and all the different ways, but like covering the, the Yakuza and like all these the politics around that. And so it's this season is it's like following him and Ken Watanabe is there and he's cool and dramatic and there's these awesome performances. And then this guy, I'm gonna, not going to say his name right, but Sho Kasumatsu, I want to say, is he's this actor. He's his role in this is like a kind of a young and up and coming like Yakuza that's like struggling with like, do I want to be part of this world or not? And he like Jake kind of become friends. I don't want to say too much, but it's like this really twisty crime almost has like a, like a Japanese Godfather vibe to it. Uh, and this actor, he's just like, has the, like the most like, like melancholy, like I'm staring across the room and I am longing and I am torn up and like, <laughs> like teenage Michael. Love it. Yeah. Where it's, you know, you know, like Kit Harrington kind of has this like his pout oh, yeah. thing that he does. Pouty like phase. this is like equally top tier. Like I am like inner demons are happening here and just watching him like look across the room at stuff. is just amazing. So how sad on a scale from one to Liam Neeson. Is Liam Neeson sad? Oh, very sad, but also oh. very dangerous. I feel like I'm only <laughs> right. In my head, he's just like straight token. Uh, stuff. Uh, anyway, but so Tokyo Vice, it's like I was expecting to be more crime and HBO and guns and like, uh, but it, it's actually like a, a kind of slow, methodical character study about these people living in Japan with all these interesting backstories. And uh, yeah. Really well done. The first episode is directed by Michael Mann, uh, which is maybe also why I was expecting it to be more yeah. Michael Mann-y. And the yeah. first episode is very Michael Mann-y, where it's like, you don't need the camera to be literally like bumping up against this guy's nose. Like, just move it back. It doesn't need to be handheld. He's just walking down a He's hallway. He's like, look, I made, I made Miami Vice, and then I made Miami Vice again, and now I'm making Tokyo, Tokyo Vice. Vice. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's great. I thought it was a limited series. I was sad when it didn't end. Uh, but there's another season coming, and I will be very excited for it when it arrives. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about the Shawshank Redemption. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes and get fun perks like voting on what war movie we should talk about, if you're upset that Full Metal Jacket didn't win, well, you should have been a patron. Uh, so head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon, uh, where you can support the show, get access to exclusive perks like that. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Happy birthday. We did Shawshank. I hope you are pleased. Uh, Happy birthday, Vince. <laughs> thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode with our discussion of 28 Days Later. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.